CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor from Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss why people struggle to reach outside their comfort zones, why it's so critically important that you do. We explore the five core psychological roadblocks stopping people from stepping outside their comfort zones. We go deep on how you can become tougher, more resilient, and embrace discomfort, how you can master the art of small talk, what you need to do to cultivate the skill of global dexterity, and much more with Dr. Andy Malinsky. The Science of Success continues to grow, with now more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries hitting number one new noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to visit successpodcast.com and join our email list or text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed an old trick palm readers use that you can leverage to get people to do what you want. Why persuasion does not lie just in the message itself, but rather in how the message is presented. What the research reveals about why the context matters as much, if not more, than the content itself. Why you shouldn't ask people for their opinion, but instead ask someone for their advice. How small differences that seem trivial make huge impacts on human behavior, and much more with the godfather of influence himself, Dr. Robert Cialdini. 
If you want to master the tools to influence anyone and listen to a titan of psychology, be sure to check out that episode. Don't forget, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we're going to talk about in this show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Lastly, your support is what drives us and keeps us creating great new content, adding value to the world, and interviewing amazing guests every single week. You can become part of our incredible mission and help us build an even better future by becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. We just launched on Patreon, and if the science of success is valuable to you, we would love if you would sign up and become one of our patrons. And we offer some sweet bonuses for you if you sign up as well. Join us today and become a part of our mission to unleash human potential. You can join now and become a patron by going to successpodcast.com slash Patreon. That's successpodcast.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or just hit the Patreon button at the top of our website. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Andy Malinsky. Andy is a professor of organizational behavior and psychology at Brandonese University. Andy is the author of Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside your comfort zone, rise to the challenge, and build confidence, as well as global dexterity, how to adapt your behavior across cultures without losing yourself in the process. He's been featured in Inc., Psychology Today, the Harvard Business Review, and was named one of LinkedIn's top voices of 2016. Andy, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you and some of your work, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and share your story. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a professor at Brandeis University at the International Business School, and I'm also in the psychology department. I kind of got into all this just uh, out of personal interest. I, when I went to college, I never, I never studied psychology. I might have taken Psych 101, but very little but then after college, I went and I uh, lived abroad and I, be, I was in France working for a French company. And I became just fascinated by interpersonal communication, cross-cultural communication, stepping outside your comfort zone and so on. And I came back to the U.S. and I was like trying to figure out what this was. At the time, I didn't have words to describe like, oh, this is that's clearly social psychology and organizational behavior. I didn't know any of that. So I was trying to search for what this was and I and I found it. And I, I just became so fascinated that I decided to go off and do a PhD and you know the rest is history. And now I'm a professor and I do a lot of academic writing and also uh, very practical writing and speaking and consulting and so on. Well, one of the topics that we're incredibly passionate about here on the show, and and actually one of our very first episodes was about the idea of, as we called it, embracing discomfort. But but that whole notion of stepping outside of your comfort zone, and it's such a vital thing to do, and and so important. And and I'd love to dig into that concept. So tell me a little bit. Why do you see people struggling to step outside of their comfort zones? So I should say, so my new book, Reach, is about exactly this topic, about stepping outside your comfort zone. And, you know, you might think that that I'm some expert on stepping outside my comfort zone if, if I wrote the book on it, but I, I definitely am not. <laughs> I, uh, I struggle as well, have always struggled, in fact, stepping outside my comfort zone. In college, I was the kid who never spoke in class, you know, whose heart was beating in the back of the room, you know, thinking about maybe raising the hand, but never doing it. Or I'd sign up for networking events and not go to them, or I'd avoid giving speeches for years and so on. So, you know, I think it's important if if we want to grow and develop, especially around transition points in our lives when we move 
from high school to college, college to the quote unquote real world, when we take when we're considering taking chances in our professional careers, when we're moving up, when we're getting, you know, promotions, new responsibilities, new tasks, considering something entrepreneurial and so on, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna, in order to, to, to achieve that personal growth, you're going to have to step outside your comfort zone, but it's easier said than done. It's, it's, it's very hard. It's legitimately hard. And, and I, I completely agree. And it's something that, you know, one of the things I've worked to cultivate in my own life is, is, sort of starting with an awareness of when are those tension points or moments when I see myself kind of entering an area of discomfort or, or exiting my comfort zone and how do I recognize that moment and step away from it or, or, or push myself into whatever that discomfort might be. What do you see being the common sort of themes or challenges that people have when they fail to step out of their comfort zone or when they're sort of trapped in their comfort zone and they can't get to the next level, they can't grow and they can't improve because of that. Yeah. So, so, so in my book, I interviewed and worked with people from all sorts of professions to answer that, that exact question and others. So I talk with entrepreneurs, executives, managers, teachers, students, you know, police officers, lawyers, rabbis, priests, uh, circus performers, uh, even a goat farmer, in, in, in all sorts of situations to try to kind of find some common denominators. And what I found across all these cases was that there were five core, I called them, you know, psychological roadblocks or psychological challenges that keep us inside our comfort zones or make it hard to step outside our comfort zones. And um, the, the first one is authenticity. It's the idea that that when stepping outside my comfort zone, it's this fear that, that I'm or not even a fear. It's, it could be legitimate that I don't feel like myself. This is not me. This is not who I am. And of course, that's perfectly natural when you're stepping into a situation that you're not comfortable with. But but very few of us want to feel inauthentic. And so that can hold a lot of us back. Uh, competence, the idea that, that, that you don't feel like you do it well, whatever this happens to be. And, and, and frankly, that other people can see that you don't do it well. And as a result of feeling inauthentic and maybe incompetent, you might feel like a poser, like an imposter, like, who am I to be doing this kind of thing? A wannabe. And, and, and that, again, is a very uncomfortable feeling to have. A third one, so you got authenticity, you got competence. Another one's likability. You know, the worry that people won't like or respect or will hate this this new version of me. You know, they'll hate me if I deliver that bad news or if I act more assertively or if I speak my voice or whatever it might be. You know, we, we all want to be liked. And so likability, the fear of not being liked is, is, a, is a real deterrent. Resentment. I find a lot of people feel, you know, logically they know that they need to adapt, adjust and act in a certain way, but 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 more unconsciously or psychologically they feel resentful about the fact that they have to do it. I I spoke with a lot of um introverts as part of this research and a lot of people who are introverted feel feel resentful that you know why can't the quality of my work matter? Why why do I why do I have to schmooze? Why do I have to network? Why do I have to go off and play golf? with these with these people in, in you know in order to get the deal why can't the quality of my work just stand on its own you know i, I think that I, I imagine a lot of us would agree that the the work world of today is is kind of geared towards extroverts it's sort of an extroverted world in in a sense you know self-starters and assertiveness and leadership or at least leadership as it's conventionally understood and so i think that 
I think it's, it can be challenging for introverts to make their way, and a lot of people feel resentful having to step outside their comfort zone. And then finally, morality. So you've got, you've got authenticity, you've got competence, you've got likability, you've got resentment. Last one is morality. And of course, you're not going to experience this every single time you step outside your comfort zone. But I encountered a lot of situations where people worried for ethical or moral reasons that what they were doing was just wrong. In fact, I opened my book, Reach, with the story of a, of a young woman who had to fire or decided she had to fire her best friend from her startup. And she experienced any number of these conflicts in definitely the morality conflict around that as well. So so those were the psychological roadblocks I found holding people back. And, and, and you can see why it's why why it's hard to step out. It's, it's really legitimately hard to step outside our comfort zones. You know, the one that, that rings especially true for me is is the idea, as you call it, authenticity, or, or I would almost conceive of it as identity or self-image. And, and when we have this this image of ourselves of, you know, I'm not good at small talk or, you know, I'm not good at handling X, Y, Z situation, it's it's a very powerful thing that controls the way you think and feel. And, and it's such a challenging thing to break out of. So that, that one, to me in particular, really stood out. I, I remember talking to some young entrepreneurs who were telling me that they had to, when they had to sort of pitch their ideas to venture capitalists to try to get funding for their businesses in sort of a shark tank type of situation. And, you know, they would stand up there with a suit and tie. And of course, they never wore suit and ties. And they would have to put on their grown up voice that they called it and, and how incredibly like inauthentic they felt. I, I remember actually myself too. This isn't about small talk, as you mentioned, but for me, I remember so well my first moments as a professor 20 years ago or so. I was at the University of Southern California and I stepped into a, a classroom for the first time teaching MBA students. And I, yeah, I was pretty young. And I stand there and I'm thinking to myself, like, who am I to be standing here and saying these things? I felt like a complete, complete imposter. So is imposter syndrome kind of a part of, of what something that traps us within our comfort zones? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I sort of feel the imposter syndrome is that combination between authenticity and competence, really. It, it is very hard to, to when you're feeling like an imposter, like you don't belong, like you're not worthy in a sense. You're, you're swimming upstream, put it that way. You're swimming upstream psychologically. So in, in Reach, you talk about our amazing capacity to avoid. Tell me a little bit about that and, and how that factor, how these, all, all of these factors kind of play into that. Well, if you're feeling, you know, if you're feeling inauthentic and competent, you're worrying that you're not going to be liked, you're feeling maybe resentful deep down, and perhaps you feel a morality conflict, you know, it's, it's, it's quite tempting to avoid, right? You know, it's, and, and, and when you think about it, there's a there's there's a positive side to avoidance. That's why we do it. And of course, the positive side of avoidance is relief. You get to avoid the thing that you're afraid of. You know, you're afraid of snakes and you avoid the snake. And you know what? That's great. It's awesome. You don't have to encounter the snake. But the problem is, is that the next time that, that the opportunity to encounter a snake comes around, it's probably going to be that much harder. You know, unless you're in the Amazon or in a snake filled area and working in, in wilderness, it's not that important probably to be able to 
encounter and uh, come come face to face with a snake. But if your sort of metaphorical snake is making small talk or networking or speaking up at a meeting or selling or whatever it might be, the more you avoid, the more difficult it becomes. Now, now, now that said, people are really good at avoiding. Me too, by the way. You know, and, and, and I found a variety of ways that people avoided. People would avoid well, simply, sometimes they would simply just avoid the thing, like they would avoid whatever it is that they were afraid of. Um, sometimes they would do the task, but only do the parts that felt most comfortable. So that sort of like, you know, kind of avoid certain parts of the task. So you see that with a feedback a lot, people who have to give critical negative feedback, you know, the classic feedback sandwich approach where you deliver, you know, positive feedback, you're, oh, you're doing so well, we really are happy to have you. And then the negative feedback you know, uh, well, this is one little thing. And then the positive feedback again, but, but, but in general, you know, we're really happy to have you there. And, you know, you, if you're really super conflict avoidant in a real people, people pleaser, you know, the meat in that feedback sandwich might shrink smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that someone might not even hear that critical feedback. So, you know, sometimes people I found sort of did what I call like, inappropriate or imperfect substitutions is a way of avoidance. So if you're a small business owner and you're not very comfortable networking at a local event, even though, by the way, as a small business owner, it's really critical for you to know people in your community, maybe you're afraid and you and you send your assistant to do it. Or maybe you decide, you know what, I'm just going to put out an email blast or I'm, I'm going to post on Facebook or something like that. And, and by the way, posting on Facebook and an email blast aren't bad inherently, but they're they're probably an imperfect substitute for what you probably should be doing if you want to grow your business. And then, you know, a lot of us just say, you know what, it's just not that important. We rationalize, you know, networking really isn't that important. You know, I don't really have to do it or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, speaking up in a meeting, is it's not really that important. If I just sort of knock out really good reports, I'm going to be just fine and so on and so forth. So, you know, and, and, and people, of course, can do a combination of these. They can avoid and they, they can maybe deliver only part of the feedback and rationalize. You can have sort of like an interesting cocktail of avoidance. But I think the bottom line is that is that many of us are good at avoiding that the more power slash autonomy you have, I think, in your job, the more the more able you are to avoid, right? If, if you're at the very top of an organization with very people, very few people supervising you, or if you're a freelancer, or if you're on your own, there are fewer checks and balances. So it's much easier to craft a life where you can avoid things outside your comfort zone. And one one of the really interesting things to me behind all of this is the the, the evolutionary biology underpinning a lot of this, and then and the idea that our brains were designed not to thrive and survive in modern day society, but in the hunter gatherer society of tens of thousands of years ago, if not millions of years ago. And so, all of these fears and things that that create self sabotage are are in many ways hardwired into the brain, but at the same time they're their, their fears and, and anxieties and things that we're concerned about are often there's, there's very little downside to doing them in reality. And there's a tremendous amount of upside. Yeah, it's true. You know, we're, we're, it's very functional. If you're fear can be very functional. If you're in the jungle and a bear's coming at you, you don't want to sit there and start reasoning to yourself. Well, this bear's not that bad. And, you know, bears are often very nice and stand there while the bear comes over and mauls you. <laughs> you know, So it's, I think the fight flight reaction is very functional, obviously. Um, 
throughout the sort of life cycle of our species. But yeah, nowadays, you know, if, if you sort of take that core tendency and you apply it to situations that are fearful, but, but, but really fearful in anticipation, fearful, you know, fear is predicting the future, right? Fear is about predicting the future. And I think we're oftentimes very poor predictors of our psychological futures, so to speak. So, you know, I, I, that said, we perhaps can talk about this later. I, I wouldn't say my point of view is that, you know, is for everyone listening to this to, you know, go, you know, run out the door and do everything possible outside your comfort zone. That's not the, the message. But I think the message is that that it, it's worth taking a hard look and it's sort of a, you know, do a psychological inventory of yourself and see where you, where where maybe there is a bit of room for growth. And I think there's there's so many negative consequences. I agree with what you're saying that it's not about just, you know, being ridiculous and doing things that are crazy over the top. It's more about if there are opportunities in your life or things that you want to achieve and you're not taking the steps that are necessary or you're rationalizing to yourself, oh, I don't need to do that. Or you're substituting, as, as you said, an imperfect substitute and, and not really doing what's necessary to achieve it. It's time to take a step back and look at yourself and look at the way that you're acting and, and push yourself to to jump outside or to leap outside of that comfort zone and, and get uncomfortable. Yeah, and you know it's it's sort of hard to do on your own as well, like purely on your own. You know, that's why I wrote this book frankly, is sort of a a way to a way to give people hopefully a resource that they can use to understand themselves, to to jump start the process. I think oftentimes we we very functionally rely on a close friend, on a spouse, you know, some someone to sort of help inspire us, help us see that we're rationalizing, perhaps, you know, someone who can be who we really care about and trust, who can be honest with us. Like, I think that these journeys, I think the spark of it needs to be from inside of you. But it's very useful to have a tool like the book I wrote, or perhaps there are other other useful tools out there. And then also someone, someone you care about, someone you trust, someone you like, someone you feel comfortable with to help you step outside your comfort zone. So let's dig into that a little bit. What are some of the specific strategies that you recommend for helping people step out of their comfort zones? Yeah. So across all the, the of course, that would be like a really bad book, wouldn't it? If I sort of talked about all the challenges and then how we avoid them and said, you know, end oh, a book. Right. So I, I really wanted to spend a lot of time carefully listening to people's stories, trying to figure out across all these different professions, across all these different contexts, what distinguished people who are successful from people who weren't successful at stepping outside their comfort zone. And I found three, three main things. The first was, was conviction. Now, this isn't rocket science. You're probably going to say, yeah, of course. But I have to tell you, this was essential. And so conviction is that that sense of purpose, that that sense that, you know, th this is something this is something that I really feel I need to do, something that's going to uh, push you to say yes when every psychological bone in your body is saying no. And, and you know, people people located and embraced their source of conviction from many places. Sometimes it was sometimes it was very professional. So, you know, I've always I've always dreamed of being an entrepreneur uh, ever since I was a kid. I've 
always wanted to be one. I, I desperately want this to work. And whatever I need to do, whether it's making a sale, whether it's pitching venture capitalists, whether it's promoting myself, speaking up at meetings, whatever, networking, whatever it is, I'm going to push myself to do it because I deeply care about this professional goal. So that's, that, that's a professional thing. Now, of course, it, it blends into the personal, and sometimes it gets quite personal. So there's there are other kinds of sources of conviction that are very personal. So I'll share with you my source of conviction that I often rely upon, which is I, I, I'm, a, I'm a parent. I have two kids, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I'm, I'm always wanting to have my kids step outside their comfort zones, and for them, it's not easy, and I, I'm trying to cajole them, I'm trying to inspire them, and so on, and then then when I took a hard look at my life in situations that I encounter, I say to myself, hey, you know, <laughs> I got to practice what I preach here. I, I, I want to be a good dad. I want to be a role model and so on. And so, you know, that's my source of conviction. Now, of course, I have professional conviction as well, but that would be an example of personal conviction. So whatever it is, wherever it comes from, where, whatever is meaningful to you, it's, it's, I think it's very important to find, locate, embrace that source of conviction for yourself. That's number one. Number two is what I call customization. And I have to say this is probably the most interesting, surprising, some ways inspiring aspects of what I found in this, in this, in this work, in this research, was that people were able to customize, personalize, tweak in a way the situation that they were in, in a way to make it just that little bit more comfortable for themselves. So I guess a good analogy might be like you're a ta like a tailor. Like let's say you buy a pair of pants at a store and very few of us can, you know, put on a pair of pants and they fit perfectly around the waist, at the legs and so on. And usually we need to tweak them here or there, maybe go to the tailor, right? It's still the same pair of pants, but you've tweaked it a bit. And as a metaphor, you can think about that in terms of adapting and adjusting your behavior. And I found people were able to tweak in a lot of different ways and make interesting, slight, but very meaningful customizations for themselves. Sometimes it was through body language. Sometimes it was from a prop, bringing a prop. And what I mean by that is, for instance, when I was earlier on in my career, I was afraid of public speaking. And of course, it's really bad if you're a professor and you public speak like three or four times a week, you know, in, in, in multiple situations. And now I, I love public speaking, but back then, not so much. I used to wear a ring, a lucky ring, and it was a ring that had a stone in it. And that stone was found on the world, uh, beaches of the South Pacific in World War II by a great uncle of mine. And when he brought it back, he had it made into a ring, and I always admired it as a kid. And eventually I inherited it, and it, and it always represented courage to me because of what he had to do to find that stone. And I, and I, and I wore it, and I always remembered that, and, and I had this sense of courage, you know, that it sort of gave me this little boost in some way when I was going off to do something outside my comfort zone. No one knew it at the time. Of course, you all do now, but no one knew it but it was meaningful to me. You know, sometimes you can you can tweak or adjust the context. You're afraid of public speaking. We just talked about that. Maybe you go early to the event and, and meet a few people. And maybe so then you're not public speaking in front of a crowd of unknown people. You're public speaking in front of a crowd of people who you, you, you do know a little bit. Uh, you're afraid of networking. You're afraid of loud, busy, noisy, intense networking situations. Well, 
a lot of people are. Maybe you play with time a little bit and you go at the very, very beginning, which I've done before, because a loud, noisy, intimidating, huge networking event is less loud, less noisy, less intimidating, less huge at the very beginning. Uh, we could go on and on, but what's interesting is the myriad of ways people find to customize, tweak in subtle ways to make that situation just a little bit more comfortable for them. So that's customization. So you got, you, you've got conviction, you've got customization. The last one is clarity, and clarity is is pretty simple. It's the idea that in these situations outside our comfort zones that are scary you know, legitimately scary to us. We often do what psychologists call catastrophizing. We look at the worst possible outcome, the worst possible scenario. You know, I'm going to give that speech. I'll be a total flop. It'll be awful. Or we look at the, you know, the extreme on the other end, the idealistic, unrealistic, positive extreme that, you know, I'm only going to give this speech if I'm a TED Talk extraordinaire, or I'm only going to start this business if it's a billion dollar business or something like that. And I think anxiety and fear can drive us in these extreme directions. And so what I found for people who are successful at stepping outside their comfort zone is that they were able to claim that much more realistic, grounded middle case, right? That, for example, you know, I'm probably not going to be the best TED talker in the world. And you know, I probably also won't faint on stage, but I'll probably be somewhere in the middle. And, you know, next time around, I'll probably will learn a lot and I'll, I'll probably do a little bit better and so on and so forth. And so claiming that sort of grounding yourself in, in, in some sense of clarity was really critical. So that's it. Those are, those are the tools that I found. Conviction, uh, customization and clarity. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. 
That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. What are some of the the ways that we can build resilience and, and make sure that we can keep these habits around once we start implementing them? Yeah, so you don't want to be a one-hit wonder, right? And I, and I think that that's really important. So I think there's some there's some basic core building blocks of resilience. One is to actually go off and do it at, at some reasonable pace. So like frequency or pace. So for example, if you deliver bad news and you use customization, use clarity, use conviction, so on, and, you, and, and you're able to do it, but then you're not delivering bad news for another 17 months, chances are it's not going to stick. You're not going to build that resilience. So you want to try to find ways of practicing, even if you're not in an actual consequential scenario or situation. And I, I use the term a just right type of situation. Anyone who is anyone who's a parent who has a kid who's who's learning to read will recognize this idea of a just right book, where your teacher, the teachers of your children, or maybe you as well, are looking for a book that's just right. Like it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not too scary and intimidating, and it's going to stretch your skills and give you an opportunity opportunity to kind of build up that resilience. And so, looking for just right opportunities to practice, get feedback from others and also sort of take your own pulse about the situation and then adjust accordingly. Revisit your sense of conviction. Revisit opportunities for customization. Revisit this idea of clarity. And I think one other thing that's really critical for building resilience ideally is having what I'd call a learning orientation. There's a Stanford psychologist named Carol Dweck who's written a book called mindset. And she also did a lot of psychological research and some of the listeners might be familiar with it. And it's just the idea that, that a learning mindset versus a performance type of mindset is, is very important, ideally to have in these types of situations outside your comfort zone, where you can see slip ups and faux pas and mistakes as part of the learning process, as opposed to some sort of testament about your, you know, inherent inability to do this. And so, you know, I think that's a, I would say that's important to cultivate, but even as I say that, you know, you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's easier said than done. You know, if I'm not born with a learning orientation, if I'm really a performance-oriented person, you know, that's pretty hard to get. It's pretty hard to, 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 to adapt. In and of itself, that's maybe stepping outside my comfort zone. But, you know, ideally, you, you, you'd have, or at least you'd try to push yourself to have a bit more of a learning perspective. And we are huge fans of Carol Dweck on the show. We've done a couple episodes about mindset. And we actually had a recent interview with her as well. 
So, I, you know, that that's probably one of, if not the single most impactful books that I've ever read in my life. And I can't recommend enough kind of thinking about a, a and orienting your life around a focus on learning instead of a focus on on proving yourself. I'm curious, are there any sort of kind of specific exercises or strategies you use to or recommend to help people in, in a very simple way kind of start pushing the boundaries and getting outside of their comfort zone? Yeah. So, so, so I feel like I, I honestly don't mean to be like an infomercial for my book, <laughs> but I, I thought of that exactly when I was writing it. And so at the very end of the book, I have, I have actual tools where you can, that you can use to operationalize every single element of the book for yourself. But beyond, so, so that, that's, that's really my, my, my best suggestion. But I think even before that, I would say, you know, in terms of trying to pick a situation, trying to think about a situation, you know, we're good at rationalizing why things aren't worth stepping outside our comfort zone for. But, you know, do a little thought exercise for yourself. You know, think to yourself, if you had some sort of magic eraser and you could erase the fear and anxiety, at least in a thought experiment, just for a moment, think to yourself and, and be honest with yourself. Is this something that you actually would like to be able to do? You know, maybe you're rationalizing it away, but but if you're honest with yourself and if fear and anxiety went away just for a moment, if you could snap your fingers, would this be something you would be interested in adding to your repertoire, learning to do? And if the answer is yes, this might be a good candidate to at least start thinking about stepping outside your comfort zone. You know, and then the next thing I would do is I would start to, you know, imagine, imagine yourself in a situation. Imagine what those fears or worries are, trying to understand and process them and understand what perhaps your psychological roadblocks are. Imagine what it's like if you could somehow make those roadblocks disappear. Imagine what it would be like if you could be successful in the situation. Now, I think that oftentimes stepping outside our comfort zone starts in our minds, you know, in terms of thinking exercises and thought exercises before we even, you know, take those little baby steps towards changing our behavior. So those are two things you can do if you're listening in the car right now. And uh, one of my favorites, and this is sort of specifically within uh, more of a social context, but one of my favorites is the uh, the concept of rejection therapy. I don't Have you ever heard of that? I probably have, but, but, but say more and maybe it will ring a bell. So basically what rejection therapy is, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes for people who want to explore this idea, but it's essentially a game where every single day your goal is to get rejected by one person. And, you know, you kind of continually sort of escalate the things you're doing to, to be more and more, to push yourself more and more. So, it's, you know, go into Starbucks and ask for a free cup of coffee or ask somebody out on a date or make a cold call and get rejected. But the goal is basically every single day do something or keep doing something that's more and more outside of your comfort zone until somebody rejects you. And it's, it's a really good way to kind of build that tolerance. And it's also something that I know you talk about the, the notion of desensitization and how that repeated exposure in, in outside of our comfort zone can help us become more comfortable with that. I'd love for you to dig into actually to the, to the concept of desensitization and tell us a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about when you said rejection therapy, that it's almost like a specific case of, a, of the grander idea of desensitization. I think what happens is that when you are able to take that leap and to actually try something and to try it multiple times, I think that you often start to discover things about yourself 
that, of course, you would not be able to discover if you were on the other side of fear, right, on the other side of not having taken the leap. And what I found in people's stories and examples, and also, of course, reflecting on my examples and my stories, was that there were two main sort of pieces of discovery that, that you got from repeated exposure. And, and one of them was, was that this isn't as hard as I thought it was. And another one is, you know, I'm actually a bit more capable than I thought I was. And, and you know, those are two very powerful ahas, personal ahas. And then if you're able to then repeat the situation to some degree and with some degree of frequency, those feelings and those discoveries can stick. And I think that's really important. I mean, I think that desensitization oftentimes in the psychological literature has sort of this, this connotation of like numbing, you know, that you get numb to something. The idea that, you know, a doctor performing a painful, bloody procedure gets desensitized and after 30 times doesn't even hear the screaming of the child or something like that. And that's possibly true. But I think that there's other more, you know, growth oriented elements to repetition and practice and experience that are important to consider alongside the desensitization effect. And that's what I was talking about with those discoveries. I'd like to dig in now to maybe one or two contextual examples of of how we can step in step out of our comfort zone. And, and one of those that I know you've written about is the the notion of delivering bad news. Can you talk about how how people struggle with that and how that's a, a concrete example of this? Yeah, that's it's interesting. When I ask people about situations outside their comfort zones, this is one of the very first ones that pops up: the idea of delivering bad news. And so, along with my I have a colleague, a friend of mine from graduate school, Joshua Margolis, and he, he, we were grad school friends at Harvard Business School, and he's now a faculty member there, and I'm at Brandeis, and we collaborated for many, many years on this topic of delivering bad news, and we studied managers and executives delivering bad news. We studied um, doctors performing painful procedures, pediatric physicians, and delivering bad news. And we also studied uh, police officers delivering bad news uh, or evicting, evicting people from their homes, which essentially is delivering bad news. I, I was actually the one who went off, who went on those interviews and also those site visits where I went with uh, two police officers during an entire day of evictions. And we evicted, well, I, I didn't actually evict them, but I was there with my bulletproof vest and everything with, you know, evicting 20 people from their homes and delivering bad news. And we're very interested in the challenges that people faced in delivering bad news. In the, in the psychology literature, in the organizational behavior literature, the focus typically is on the victims, on the recipients of bad news, for, for good reason, of course. But, but there was very little on the performers. And so that's what we were interested in, in that, in that area of research. And so we did research for many years about the challenges that people face when delivering bad news. And a lot of that, those ideas, I think, have found their way into my book, Reach, about the dysfunctional conversations that people can get in when trying to deliver bad news. Like, for example, you can never let bad news become an argument. You can, le- you can never let bad news become a negotiation, you know, because you're going in there to deliver a fait accompli. You, you really need to do that, even to treat someone with dignity and respect. You can't let it become an argument or a negotiation if that's not your intention to begin with. You have to avoid the but why dynamic. There's always this, you know, if you're delivering bad news and someone says, but why, but but why? 
and you have to figure out a way to to make sure that, that, that you can deliver the message in a clear, consistent, but compassionate way to avoid that dynamic and the conversation playing out when the reality is, is that it can't play out. What I've always been told by human resources managers is that if you if people are surprised in a, in a corporate context with a firing or a layoff, for example, that you've done a really bad job because, they, because bad news, quote unquote, or critical feedback should be something that's delivered on an ongoing basis so that, so that people uh, understand where they need to improve and they're given opportunities and performance plans to actually achieve that. But unfortunately, because <laughs> delivering bad news is often outside people's comfort zones, you know, many people and many organizations fall short on that. So I think it's a very, I think delivering bad news is a very challenging situation. I can tell you from, if, if we're interested in like a social media perspective as an indicator of how popular the topic is, I had a post on LinkedIn uh, maybe last year that got over 100,000 views on delivering bad news because I think it just, it just really resonates with people. I couldn't agree more about the the, the premise that if a firing should never come as a surprise to anybody, you should be having very clear conversations on, a, on, a, on an ongoing basis well before that conversation about your performance isn't up to par. We need to do the following things or we're going to have a more serious conversation. And that that needs to happen several times down the road. And then when you finally get to that, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that that, that you know, a firing is happening. So I I totally agree with with your analysis. And I think that's very important. And, and you know, many people in, in many different walks of life have to deliver bad news in one way or another. And so that's, that's a great skill to kind of pick up and, and cultivate. The, the, the other example that I know you've talked about in the past is, is small talk. And that's something, you know, I, being, being somewhat of an introvert myself, that's definitely something that I've had to push myself out of my comfort zone and develop that skill set. Can you tell me, you know, share with me that example and, and how that challenges people? Well, I think it's interesting. So I, I spent many years, in fact, my first book was uh, called Global Dexterity, which is about acting outside your cultural comfort zone. And I still do a lot of work and a lot of training and teaching and consulting and so on and speaking about acting outside your cultural comfort zone. And one thing that you might not know if you're listening is that the United States is one of only a few cultures where it's very, very common to make small talk with people you don't know. <laughs> so it's uh, I have people from other countries, for for example, like they're they cannot believe that at the supermarket you'd be there with a couple of mangoes, you know, a loaf of bread, a, a bananas, a, a milk or whatever it is. And someone would start to chit chat with you about what you've bought and then very quickly learn that they just had a divorce or <laughs> whatever it might be. You know, that's somewhat of an extreme example, but frankly, not all that extreme. And, you know, that's just that sort of a social example. But then in the corporate world or in the work world, small talk is very important for building that quick sense of trust, that bonding, which can have lots of implications down the road for who gets favored, who gets plum assignments, who gets cut slack and so on and so forth. So, you know, small talk is really a critical skill, but it's very hard for a lot of people to engage in conversations with, with, with people around small talk. It's hard to start a small talk conversation for a lot of people. And then once you learn how to start a small talk conversation, it's very hard for a lot of people to continue it, to make it, you know, not just sort of stop, to not, not just be like, oh, how's the weather? Good. Yeah. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. And then have that uncomfortable stop to actually sort of continue it. And then, of course, to end it. 
Some people are uncomfortable ending small talk, fearing that the other person will think that they're not interested in continuing to talk and so on. And so it's actually quite an art. And I've written a lot about it. And I, I, I think, though, I think small talk in some ways, I can understand why a lot of people struggle with it and they can get frustrated and resentful about its importance. I think it's also to re important to remember that probably every meaningful relationship that you have with someone that you're not like related to uh, began with small talk. You know, I, I met my wife through small talk. You know, I met some of my very best friends through small talk, you know, so as, as, as superficial and seemingly meaningless as it is, it's a very important catalyst to, to engaging people, but also outside many people's comfort zones. That's a great point. And that's something I've actually never thought about that the idea that every meaningful relationship outside of your blood relatives essentially is a result of small talk and just underscores the, the importance of it. You know, one of the things that I've, that I found to be really helpful with cultivating small talk is focusing on kind of a deep curiosity and wanting to really understand the other person and just asking them lots of questions about themselves, getting them talking about themselves. And then once they start answering, that gives you more material to then pull from and continue to get more and more questions. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that being a, uh, being a, a, a careful listener, learning, knowing how to to share as well as listen, and to also um, share, per I wouldn't say personal information, but I would almost call it quasi-personal information about yourself is important because you're trying to build a sense of camaraderie in a sense. At first camaraderie, at first rapport, and then ultimately over time, perhaps a bit more of real trust and a real relationship. So, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a skill. It's, it's really a skill being able to listen, to try to make connections, to ask questions in an open-ended way as opposed to a closed-ended way. In other words, you know, if you ask a question that invites a yes-no answer, it oftentimes can be a small-talk killer. But if you ask the very same question in an open-ended way, it can invite the other person to respond in a more elaborated way, which then can bring up more potential information for you to hook onto and to, you know, and to connect to. So there's an art to it. You talked about your, your previous book, Global Dexterity. Tell me briefly, what is that concept and, and what is kind of the core message of that book? So Global Dexterity is about acting outside your cultural comfort zone. And so for many years, I have studied and worked with people out, uh, adapting behavior across cultures. In fact, my PhD dissertation in graduate school was about Russians learning to interview and network in the United States and how hard it was for them and how it, was, it wasn't just merely understanding the cultural differences. It was learning to adapt and adjust their behavior in light of those differences. And that's the critical point about global dexterity. So you probably listeners have probably heard or read a blog or even a book or an article about how, you know, Chinese are different than Americans or Germans are different than French and so on and so forth, which is important and useful to know. But it's really critical to be able to learn how to adapt and adjust your behavior in light of those differences. That's the key point. And, you know, in the business world today, there's a lot of rhetoric about globalization and about companies going global and 
and, but the reality is that it's it's of course companies are going global, but the the people who are actually going global aren't the companies. It's the people. It's the people negotiating contracts. It's the people making small talk as we're talking about networking and so on. And so it's really critical to be able to equip people with the ability to sort of adapt and adjust their behavior across cultures. So in some ways, now that we've talked a lot about reach in my new book. In a lot of ways, global dexterity is a very specific application or case of reach, but to the cross-cultural environment. And so that's that's in a nutshell about what it's, what global dexterity is about. So for somebody who's listening to this that, that wants to concretely implement some of these ideas and start stepping out of their comfort zone, what would a small piece of actionable advice be that you would give them, kind of one piece of homework that they could start on immediately? I think it would be to do what we talked about before, to think, to, to try to identify a situation, something where they can try to, where, where they might be, there might be a lot of noise in their head around rationalization, like, like very strong impulsive defenses that they're putting up about, no, 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 that's not that important. No, 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 I don't really need to do that. No, no, that's not that important. That kind of thing. And if the more you seem to be sort of defensively rationalizing, the better probably that is a candidate for stepping outside your comfort zone. I'd, I'd take a hard look at that situation, whatever it is for you. I'd think to yourself, if you could erase fear and anxiety in that situation just for a split second and consider whether minus fear and anxiety or at least minus tremendous fear and anxiety, it might be something worth doing. That, that might be a candidate for stepping outside your comfort zone. And that's something anyone can do at any point. You could do that right now. So that's, I think that would be probably the, the, the immediate actionable step. Of course, I'd love people to check out my book and the tools and, and so on. And I think it, it, it genuinely is really helpful. But I think minus that, simply trying to identify a situation that you might want to work on would be a great first step. And where can people find you and your books online? Yeah, so I so I have a website, www.andymolinsky.com. It's spelled A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And I love to connect with people on social media, and I have my email address there. I'm happy to communicate with, with anybody, with listeners. There are links to my books. There are also some great stuff there as well. There's a uh, free guide to stepping outside your comfort zone. We just talked about cultures. There's also a free guide to the cultural codes of 10 different cultures around the world. So I tried to make my website a in lots of, like hundreds of articles and so on and quizzes. And I tried to make my website a fun place to visit. So uh, I hope you visit it. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to include all of those links in the show notes for everybody to be able to check out. Andy, thank you so much for coming on here and, and sharing your wisdom today. We really appreciated you having you as a guest. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. Your support is what drives us and keeps us creating great new content, adding value to the world, and interviewing amazing experts every single episode. And now you can become part of our incredible mission and help us build an even better future by becoming one of our patrons on Patreon, as well as unlocking some awesome bonuses, including exclusive guides, a personal video message from me, and much more. We'd love if you join us today and become one of our patrons by going to successpodcast.com slash Patreon. That's successpodcast.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or just click the Patreon button at the top of our website. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. 
I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to successpodcast.com, that's successpodcast.com and joining our email list. Don't forget, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about in this show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home Yes, cool! or attending one live, you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.